This kind of ties back to that idea that Barry, was it Barry Schwartz? Is he the guy? I'm going to look it up really quick. Is it Paradox of Choice? Yes. Yeah, Barry Schwartz. I, oh, you looked that up really quickly. I'm impressed. <laughs> that was rapid research. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Evolving, the podcast designed to help you strive, thrive, and optimize. Today, I'm here with Ricky Deriz, the author of Mindsets for Mindfulness and the creator of Mind That Ego, a new paradigm for creativity, consciousness, and human potential. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. I'm, I'm honored. I'm really excited to get into your stuff. You're such a prolific writer and you do create a lot of content around the idea of mindfulness and how our mindsets can really impact so many facets of our life. I wanted to talk a little bit about your book, if that's okay. It's called Mindsets for Mindfulness. And you begin with a discussion on enchantment. And this reminded me of a couple mm. things. One, Jason Silva's series, Shots of Awe, where he describes awe as an experience of such perceptual vastness that you have to literally reconfigure your models of the universe in order to assimilate it but also this one section from the great gatsby where the narrator nick carraway is talking about how he was within and without simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life and of course he meant that in a slightly different context but i just wanted to ask you if you could describe the enchanted worldview for us and explain its significance in your own personal learning journey that is an incredible question and intro I absolutely love that we that we started enchantment for me enchantment was the threshold and the tipping point of my meditation practice it was very much the moment where I feel like I fully re-engaged and, and fully fell back in love with life and I say that as a, a process of going through difficulty of my mental health and, and you know experiencing depression and anxiety and going through a not only a, a dark night of the soul for a prolonged period of time, but also a sense of retreating from the world. I, I went through a process originally of exploring the psychology and getting to understand depression and really looking at all of the experiences that I had through a, a Western framework. And then when I started meditation and I had this Eastern model to, to work with, this philosophy from Buddhism and, and Hinduism, similar kind of approaches, I then felt that I had this pathway to, to my inner world that offered something completely different. Now there's a very, you know, a symbolic and a literal closing of the eyes a lot of the time with meditation. And I really went through that process where it became a form of medication in a way, a form of retreat. And enchantment was that moment after a while of, of retreating from the world, of realizing the enhanced perceptual beauty of what comes from a, a clear mind you know like cleansing those doors of perception i think huxley is a book by huxley like cleansing the doors of perception and seeing what lies beyond your perception of the world from the mental chatter the kind of emotional clouding so for me it really is a, a rediscovery of not only the beauty and the potential of you know for all with the universe around you but also the the engagement and the interaction and that was a big thing for me this like synchronistic dance of mind and matter that defied all previous laws of, of my understanding of the nature of reality and when they, those things coalesce and combine that's you know the real embodied experience of a reality shift and it, it is something that leaves you trembling at times you know at the beauty of it and at the the visceral 
enhancement of, of all aspects of reality. And it kind of sounds like an acid trip, right? <laughs> and it, and it, it does have that, that parallel to psychedelic experience. I love that you talk about this convergence of mind and matter. In your view, what is the mind-body connection? Should there even be a distinction between mind and body? Or is it all part of the same process? For me, this, this exploration of consciousness which started with meditation kind of directed my curiosity also towards the the scientific and and looking for alternative approaches to describe consciousness to describe emotionality to, to describe the self and just to see really if there was anything that could align uh, these non-dual approaches of oneness and interconnection with the scientific and and the more material approach and for me like looking at and understanding consciousness as a hard problem of science, it just, it, it really made sense to me as like, oh, there's not a definitive answer. Like for some reason, I always just bought the the assumption that consciousness arises from the brain. It's, it's a byproduct of a biological process. And the more you go into meditation and into the self, the more you begin to realize that that doesn't quite explain a lot of these, you know, extrasensory perception, experiences of oneness, mystical experiences in general even you know anomalies that are so common for the majority of people yet they still are outliers in terms of that material paradigm so in terms of the mind body for me it's, it's a case that my understanding is that we, we we are part of an interconnected consciousness we can call that consciousness brahman we can call it the universe the great mystery or god to to avoid the the stigma around that term, that we have within us an essence of that, that aspect of consciousness. And from that essence, if that was like the the, the truest essential part of, of ourselves that is completely the same throughout the universe, and I'm saying this also, this is speculative, you know, this is just me trying to talk through it, that the soul is more of a unique blueprint that lies outside of the material. And there's like a funneling that, that kind of builds and builds and, and mind itself is something that I, I, I believe is personal and universal. I believe that mind is individual and we have our own psychology, but the more we, we expand our awareness, we expand into almost a universal mind. And I know there are, there are a number of theories in quantum mechanics, for example, around the universe's mind and I don't know if you saw this, there's a beautiful study around the similarity between the structure of the brain and the structure of the cosmos. And it's, it is phenomenal, the likeliness between this. So for me, I, I, my understanding is that we kind of incarnate in physical form, but we have a non-physical essence and the mind is part of that non-physical rather than, rather than a, a byproduct of, you know, mechanical or biological goings on in the, in the brain and body. I really love that connection to psychology that you mentioned, because I do think that our models of consciousness do have a bearing on physiological processes too, and even the way we approach health and disease. I did want to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about models of depression, which is something that you recently covered in some of your online content. Earlier this year, a review had been published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry stating that depression is likely not caused by a chemical imbalance, and 
The authors, they had pointed to research comparing levels of serotonin and its breakdown products in blood and brain tissues and found no difference between people who suffered from depression and healthy controls. And they also cited studies where artificially lowering serotonin levels didn't seem to produce depression. And just as a PSA here, if you are taking antidepressants or SSRIs, like please don't change your dosage or or stop without mm. consulting your healthcare provider. But that being said, there are potential other ways in which SSRIs could be exerting beneficial effects, like reduction in inflammatory cytokines, for example. I've always personally been of the belief that depression is likely a symptom rather than a disease in and of itself. And this is obviously informed by my own personal experience, but also my working knowledge of chronic diseases and what I've observed in the Spoonie community. And Spoonie is just a term for chronically mm. ill people in general. In my view, depression can be the result of neuroinflammation, gut microbiome dysbiosis, nutritional deficiency, hypothyroidism, heavy metal exposure. I think that mm -hmm. the causes are, are numerous and manifold. And I sort of also remember this one bit from this book, The Fault in Our Stars, where I think the narrator Hazel says that depression is not a symptom of cancer. Depression is a symptom of dying. I mean, it's, yeah. it's heavy, but also it's, it's profound in, in a way. But given yeah. the importance that you place on consciousness in your daily work as a fundamental part of mental well-being, what do you think about the mm. potential for things like psilocybin or other psychedelics for treating depression and maybe alleviating yeah. some of the, the worst aspects of it? Oh, these are brilliant questions. I, I, I love that as an approach. And the first thing I would say also to, to mirror what you said, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist around this. I'm not someone who is within that, that scientific framework. So I, I, what I say is a mixture of my experience, my personal experience with depression and also just a lot of research and study and conversation. And, and you know, for me, a, a really important factor is the context of this, the context of depression. And the wider you, you go, the, the wider the per perspective becomes, you start to notice different patterns of societal expectation or assumption, scientific assumptions, such as a materialistic worldview and how they have a, a, a drip down effect and like a funneling effect where an entire worldview, and you touched upon this, you, you touched upon this earlier, can really influence an entire field an entire field of psychiatry, for example. And I, I, I give that as a caveat because there can be some recklessness in spiritual communities or spiritual ways of thinking and being through spiritual bypassing where people completely overlook the biological or they completely overlook all the, the potential causes that, that you mention and try it like, or just go straight directly to consciousness and being the, you know, consciousness is essential. Therefore, I, I ideally would be able to change my state and affect my mood through meditation or through even like positive thinking, which is, that's another subject. Maybe we'll get to <laughs> at some point. So my, my belief is that there's a, a symbiotic relationship and you can, if you really, that there are, you know, there are gurus or yogis or, or advanced meditators who can influence their biology their actual mood a lot easier because they've strengthened that connection but ultimately that's a long path and a long road one great example of that is Wim Hof who's like a modern day shaman like he can change his heart rate he can release dopamine on demand and all this kind of stuff I I say this because 
the the effect between the two is really important and the relationship as well as the context and I believe that looking at all areas of your life holistically is really important and I see great great potential you know in the the understanding that we have around nutrition and the gut biome and psychedelics for example psychedelics in particular are really interesting because they they have that ego dissolution element they have that ability and this is something that you can take years and years in meditation it's almost like you can just jack straight into that advanced state and that can have a profound effect in terms of someone's worldview or they might have an embodied mystical experience and that can really shift the entire context within which the depression is felt and that's what meditation does as well it shifts the context so for me it is also just incredibly complex and the beauty of that is I've always had the mindset, you know, of have I tried absolutely everything? Because I've been, you know, I felt defeated so many times in in this journey with with depression. And I, I, you know, I always would would come back to that. Like, have I tried absolutely everything? Is there something else that I can try? And I feel like that's a really empowering approach because it allows people to to say, well, there there are infinite opportunities to try. And not to to judge that, not to judge if if it... becomes chronic as it was for me or if it feels like there's a lot of resistance towards those kind of symptoms but to just always look at the opportunity to try something new and for some it might be psychedelics for some it might be meditation for some it might be a change in diet but for everyone it's going to be a multitude of different things and I think ultimately having the awareness and and the curiosity towards it is a really big shift in the beginning to start trying to understand it rather than see it as a, just, just a disease or just an illness, to be curious towards it. Absolutely. And I love that you touched upon the holistic aspect of it, because even the authors of the review were stating that if we consider depression to not just be a chemical imbalance, that actually might provide more hope for patients, because as you're saying, there are more routes, more avenues to investigate if you're not seeing progress with with SSRIs or, or pharmacological intervention, for example, there could be so many other ways. There's a multitude of avenues that you could continue to pursue. So I do think that there is a redemptive message. There is a message of hope that, you know, just because your depression didn't respond the way someone else's did doesn't mean that you can't find a solution. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you can't find a way out. And I very much do identify with a lot of these aspects. Um, personally, having struggled with depression for about six years, this was in the aftermath of mm-hmm of a prescription medication error. And for me, the solution Mm. was very much diet oriented and focusing on the gut microbiome. But yeah, I think finding your root cause can really be quite instrumental in getting, you know, on the path towards healing. Um, I wanted to go back for a second to what you said about societal expectation. And uh, you recently talked about the spiritual but not religious label as applying to people who break away or don't resonate with conventional religion and prefer to explore spirituality on their own terms. In your view, what does it mean that more people are identifying with the spiritual but not religious identifier? And how is that changing the mm. way we interact with one another? How is that changing spirituality? How is it changing society? Mm. Brilliant question. Yeah, so the first place that, that I would go to with that is the there's a potential, and I, I think I touched upon this in that when I was exploring that label and, and playing with this idea of being spiritual but not spiritual but not religious and kind of having fun with that. And there's a risk that we can create resistance 
and we can create apathy or even anger towards religion and to say all religion is is bad or all religion is not true spirituality or all religion is you know xyz and i'm a big believer in seeing and and inquiring into religion and it's that it's the aspects that one can use to empower themselves because those structures are so important and why i think i was drawn towards eastern approaches was the fact that they they were esoteric rather than exoteric and the difference being very much inwardly centered versus being external and there's a point of inquiry that i encourage you know, people listening to this if, if they've had a history of religion and they're kind of finding their way through that the point of inquiry is to really inquire into what are the elements that i didn't like and what are the elements that i did like and can i empower myself to take the things that worked and the things that the things that i enjoyed and let go of the rest and you know there's a risk as well of this like free for all this wild west of spirituality that lacks a certain ethical code a framework for meditation a proper context and without that you can just develop you know we're in an age especially on instagram you know of spiritual narcissism spiritual ego people that are actually aggrandizing their sense of self you know people that are not understanding their psychology through through spiritual means spirituality that isn't embodied in virtue and there's almost just as much like implicit dogma of that this this is spirituality on your terms compared to to historical religion as well so it's it's really a a fine balance and it comes down to empowerment of the individual and and empowering like spirituality and i can say this in your hand on heart that it's an an inward connection to something greater than, than yourself and that is something that's been disenfranchised for thousands of years and power has been taken away from individuals and placed at the hands of those high-ranking you know in different institutions and that remains the case now in in areas of scientism which maybe we can explore at some point but the key for me is to empower people to explore within to explore an authentic spirituality but to have enough of a philosophy a framework and almost a, a grounding in ethics and and morality so that that doesn't go too far in the other extreme and people don't kind of like believe their own hype too much you know like and i can do it like i i'm, I'm aware i can believe my own hype if i'm not keeping myself in check so it it, it really is a a delicate balance and and i think that we're not i don't feel we're quite there i feel a lot of a lot of spiritual teachers go down a bit of a one track route and it and can become a brand within themselves with and and maybe lose sight at times not all of them many of the great ones are dead though some of my favorite spiritual teachers are dead and you can still learn a lot from there just touching upon <laughs> that point you made about keeping ourselves in check in your book you describe several different archetypes the sincere scientist the warrior of acceptance the divine nonconformist, and the compassionate disciplinarian and your chapter on the latter begins with a quote by Kristen neff the biggest reason people aren't more self-compassionate is that they're afraid they'll become self-indulgent. They believe self-criticism is what keeps them in line. And I personally identified with this pretty strongly because I do have a tendency to focus on areas of improvement rather than 
things I've accomplished. I do think that this stems from a fear of stagnancy or complacency, kind of like what mm-hmm. Jacques Monod had said when he when he mentioned it is restlessness, anxiety, dissatisfaction, agony of mind that nourish science. What would you say perhaps to people who struggle with self-compassion and fear becoming too satisfied in order to stay motivated? Yeah, this is incredibly synchronistic. Um, I was having this conversation with my partner Sanya earlier today around self-compassion and one of the most valuable tools I think out of all the tools that I've, I've learned over the years is the yin and yang of self-compassion and that was also I think the term was potentially coined by Kristen Neff as well or, or she maybe got that from somewhere else and, and used that terminology. Now the the yin and yang of self-compassion is all about finding balance between being able to meet yourself in a way that you mentioned through self-criticism and through an approach where you, you kind of push yourself on, you encourage yourself, you have that, almost like that military sergeant that says, come on, get out there. Like when, when I was really depressed, they'd be like, come on, get out of bed, you've got, you've got to show up, don't let this get the better of you. And it has a, a use, but that use is limited there's like a case of diminishing returns after a while. So the yin and yang balances that also with a a more accepting and nourishing and nurturing approach to self-compassion. And the key is is really to to find that balance within yourself because we all have different tendencies and dispositions and some might push themselves more and might need a bit more nourishment, whereas others might be more stuck in stagnation and, and need to push themselves in a different way. And I think it really is, especially with depression, especially with being in a a state or being in a a situation or an inner experience that already feels somehow like it's behind societal expectations of how you should be. That's the toughest place to be in terms of being able to acknowledge growth and being able to really set manageable goals and to set a really healthy approach to to personal development to spirituality and i you know i I really feel strongly about this in terms of where i've been and my history but it's the greatest act of compassion and and, you know the the actual meaning of this is is to suffer with but in a buddhist context there's also the the desire to help not only to suffer with and empathize but but to help and knowing what helps in what moment is a huge part of self-compassion. And if you're really stuck and you know, if you're struggling with depression, it doesn't help to be like, why are you like this? You know, why are you struggling so much? Why is it so difficult to do basic things? That's where you need that nourishment and that caring. And the self-honesty is required in, in terms of knowing when to then step into, come on, I've got this. I can push myself now. So there's a a real nice relationship with that yin and yang element of self-compassion. And it is needed, I think. You know, the the Kristen Neff also, she's done research that that shows, like a lot of research around this, that shows that a self-critical inner voice doesn't actually lead to more productivity. It's it's a myth that we've internalized. And that self-compassion actually allows you to be more productive even just if you think of it like in terms of perfectionism creative output if you're really critical you can you can diminish that through a a selfification almost of of these different areas of of expression so yeah i i I like that you asked that question because that that tool for me is 
so powerful so powerful and it is it is a matter of trial and error over time absolutely i love that you alluded to the importance of self-knowledge and knowing how to help ourselves because i do think we are in the best position to know what is or isn't going to help us in any given moment just because we've lived with ourselves our entire life so we know what our triggers are we know what makes us feel better so i think it also kind of goes back to that idea of self-soothing and knowing how to do that for oneself is really important especially in hustle culture and all the distractions that are constantly Mm. presenting themselves Mm. i did want to touch upon your mention of empowerment of the individual you've previously mentioned the importance of intrinsic motivation and the dangers of waiting for someone else to validate your potential and this kind of reminded me of a few things um one admiral grace hopper when she said it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to get permission just that idea of not waiting around for the bureaucratic red tape to clear if you want to do something just go ahead and do it and if you need to ask forgiveness later do that but i'm waiting for permission is it you'll be waiting forever essentially but this also reminded me of something that naval ravikant sometimes talks about which is that idea of permissionless leverage And the basic idea behind permissionless leverage is that you remove the barriers to entry and you build products that work for you while you're sleeping. And he cites two prime examples of code and media as being like the foremost relevant examples that are applicable to modern society. And you also talk about, you know, the importance of not waiting for things like you can create an app without a degree. You can produce a film without a studio. You can publish an article without a literary agent. How can we leverage this intrinsic motivation to accomplish our goals? Even though, you know, this is arguably a riskier path in in some ways, there are parallels to the entrepreneurial spirit in terms of having that intrinsic motivation, Mm -hmm. pursuing things, even though the payoff might not be in the near future. The very nature of intrinsic motivation is incredibly valuable and it does link quite strongly to values. It links to values in that if I'm able to create in my life a number of goals or a number of activities that are rewarding just for their own sake, then I can integrate that and I can start to learn about myself and I can, at least in the beginning, start to add different elements that are meaningful regardless of the outcome now regardless of the outcome is so important because we we do live in a time where everything is outcome orientated it's really difficult now to to avoid you know if you write it's all about monetizing your writing if you produce anything on on youtube it's about getting a million followers and and making money through that you know it really is very much focused on what what comes from that and this is stretching stretching me a little bit because it was a while ago that I really explored this. But again, the research shows that intrinsic motivation is far, far more powerful than extrinsic motivation. And extrinsic is the classic reward of money, fame. You know, it can, it can be a state. It can be egoically rewarding through status and that kind of thing. Intrinsic motivation is doing something for, for the fun of it. Now, a lot of times in life, we, we do have to tether and balance between what is practical. And there are times where finding that balance between the extrinsic, like I just, I do see it as a, a balancing act where, for example, if you're in a situation where you're, you're well rewarded financially to write on a topic you're not so interested in, you're going to have an intrinsic element of enjoying writing. And the extrinsic is going to make you more likely to write about a topic you're not so interested in 
because there's a balance of, okay, I, I get the intrinsic reward of writing and I also get the extrinsic reward of, of money. Intrinsic motivation though is absolutely essential to self start and to nourish any creative outlet, to, to build any venture because it's a long path of like, you know, in all honesty, it's a long path of rejection. It's a long path of feeling like, are people resonating with this? Like, like you mentioned in the beginning, I'm a, a prolific writer and, and I, I write a lot, but that also means that there's a lot that I'm in a relationship with an article, right? And it, it moves through me and it's something that is meaningful. I, I'm very lucky that I get to write about topics that, that I'm passionate about and self-development and spirituality. But so often that can be, it can feel like they go into the ether. <laughs> so there, there's a, a real strong intrinsic motivation there around the joy of writing and, and also the, the strong link to my, my values of what I'm trying to serve with, with that writing. And those values can be a North Star. They can be your compass. And the intrinsic motivation is something that allows you to really move forwards and to work on something maybe when there aren't extrinsic rewards or maybe when the world isn't quite ready for what you're sharing and and I think it's something that to be able to cultivate that is is essential it's absolutely essential to to so many paths of of creativity and meaning as well meaningful work or meaningful service and all these kind of areas I love that you mentioned how intrinsic and extrinsic motivations can balance one another out because I do think sometimes there's this tendency to characterize a goal as being either inherently one or the other but they can both exist at the same time and in various proportions to one another and this this reminds me of the concept of ikigai which kind of describes the convergence between what you love what you're good at what you can be paid for and what the world needs how do you think of Mm -hmm. ikigai as kind of relating to spirituality and what we do with our lives and how we spend our time how do we live more intentionally so I think there's a there's a risk and one thing I want to note as well I, I wrote about ikigai a while ago and actually discovered that the common approach that we we look at it from with that diagram sources back to a blog post that someone wrote and uh, the original meaning from that is is slightly kind of shifted to fit our approach and our approach to productivity so it's it's really interesting that what has taken off is encoded with the the values of our society in terms of that hustle culture and that kind of thing. I think that there can be a tendency to want to to really bring in or match any any passion project or any kind of output as as a way of being or a, a lifestyle or your work fully or you know all this this kind of way of making that the thing. But I think there's great value in reconnecting with meaning and purpose as really the small things in life and and that intrinsic reward also but not not i guess what i'm tapping into is there can be a a quite a a grandiose drive and i say this i can relate to this with mind that ego and 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 what i'm doing as well you have this like razzmatazz the razzmatazz of like followers and, and fame and all this kind of thing and it it can have a almost like a, a reverse effect and and for me that meaning and purpose can can just be really the the micro elements of of life 
uh, and ultimately they are like these big moments they they come and go but they're rare and I remember in the beginning I, I was always like unconsciously waiting for a big moment and and that if you just think of the mindset of that the approach of waiting for a big moment you're, you're already implying that the current moment's not big that's is small and that is somehow diminished compared to like the, these peak experiences and you know I think in terms of that meaning at least in my experience it's really how can I move forwards and how can I try and like evolve and how can I grow and how can I improve what I'm doing and, and what I'm here to do whilst taking as much enjoyment with each step as well and, and that it sounds a bit cliched but but it really is that balance again of having the vision having a vision and feeling like this is exactly what I'm here to do this is what I really want to do but then kind of being non-attached to the extent of but if that doesn't happen it's okay because I'm, I'm here right now and and you know really being able to acknowledge those those moments of of meaning and, and value as well does that answer the question I'm not sure if I went off on a tangent a no definitely and I like the fact that you mentioned how we've essentially westernized the concept of ikigai but I think that idea of non-attachment to ideas it reminds me of something called the paradox of intentionality where you basically want to be committed enough to get stuff done and get started but you also want to be detached enough to pivot and change course and change direction if need be if your original blueprints don't mm -hmm. work out and I think that adaptability is just so necessary in our modern environments because we're in an era of unprecedented change. At any given moment, the skill set that you've developed could be outsourced, done cheaper somewhere else, or completely automated by AI or, or some other system. So I think not only do we have to have that flexibility to pivot, but I think it also speaks to the importance of being a generalist versus having too many pockets mm -hmm. of, of specialties. What do you think about the idea of being a generalist and having range in, in today's day and age? And how does this also perhaps connect to motivation and the things that we're passionate about? Should we be multi-passionate in the sense that we're kind of adding more feathers to our cap while at the same time improving our economic prospects by doing so? I always, I always come back to this point of balance like with these questions, which I, I, I like that I do. Because I do feel that there is a balance between having a, a spell, having a period of time to try and to experiment and to, to learn and to grow and, and to develop skills, as well as knowing that no one person can do everything all the time. And there is value in being able to have that experimentation enough, have that learning process enough to then almost gather enough data to know this is what I really want to focus on because I, I do feel there's this balance between if you do try to be too general across the board, it can come at the expense of one area in particular thriving. And, and just to relate that to my experience, that for me is, has been a, a decision to really focus on my, my writing and, and mind that ego compared to video production. You know, at one point I was trying to do a podcast video, like separate videos social media like the whole shebang and I, I realized like for, for one to take off I've got to refine I've got to be able to refine and it's almost like sometimes you have to generalize enough to know what you would like to specialize in so you have to go out like this gather enough information and then refine that's that's how I've done it at least it doesn't mean that I wouldn't do 
like the video production and the podcasting and that kind of thing. It just means that the way I, I, I wait and distribute my time links to that, that priority. It is difficult. And I, I feel like we share this when th- there's a lot of interest in a lot of different fields. That is harder. I, 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 at least I would say that, but I believe that that's more difficult because then you have like shiny object syndrome where it's almost like fo- you, you focus on one thing, but in focusing on that one thing, all the other things you're not doing become apparent as well. So it, it can feel like a scarcity mindset towards that. So for me, it really is about kind of that generalization and then specializing. And also once, if you're, you're in an area and you've specialized, being able to, to really commit for a certain period of time on a project, a topic, you know, a, a course or, or something. And just learning that discipline in a, in a healthy way, being able to complete and see through a project. I feel like that's also a really good discipline. Absolutely. I love that idea of kind of expanding your horizons, funneling outward in the beginning and then figuring out what you want to niche down on just in terms of figuring out which platforms you can make a difference on, figuring out the fields in which you can have some longevity. Just kind of going back to that idea of commitment, how long do you think one should commit to an endeavor? And of course, you know, I think a lot of this could be dependent upon what it is that you're trying to do, but at least in your own experience, when it came to podcasting, video production, how long was it before you kind of started to see improvement? And how can people gauge whether they've really given something the old college try? Oh, God. Well, I, I think above all else, it's radical self-honesty and, and perhaps linked with self-knowledge enough to know, similar to, to what we spoke about with the self-compassion, to truly know, like, have I given this enough? I feel like there's a, an intuitive element to that. Like, have I, have I tried enough? Have I learned? Because there are, within these areas, there are skills to learn, there are strategies to put in place. And that takes time and patience. And again, with like Ikigai and this pressure to turn everything into to a business or to, to something entrepreneurial, it can create a, a time urgency and an impatience. Again, if, and this is all linking together nicely, like if you link that to intrinsic motivation, if you see everything as process and everything in evolution, it makes it easier to say there are no losses if I do see this through, if I follow something. You know, for me, it's been a, a case of really like understanding the sunk cost fallacy, you know, which is that for, there's a, a psychological cognitive distortion around committing to something and then over committing because, because of the investment that you've already made. And seeing that as like a, a a good safety net, right? I know it's possible I could overcommit. What's my constitution? Like, do I generally overcommit to projects or do I undercommit? Like, and, and understanding where you are as you go into that and then being self-honest. But I would say that make it, it really, it depends on, on what the venture is. But for me, I'm like, I don't have a choice. I, I don't have a choice to write. I don't have a choice to, to have ideas. They're there. They're not going away. I've said multiple times, I'm done with mind that ego. I can't do this. Like it's too much effort. You know, I've been in that space and then the ideas are still there. And I'm like, the only way I can, I can work with this is to channel it. And that was like both terrifying and, and liberating at the same time. But there really is like this approach of, it takes it takes time and discipline to, to nurture anything, you know, and, and the question is within that, the, within the process, what's being learned? Is there a sense of overcommitment? It is what I'm, I'm 
I'm learning and moving towards genuinely a heartfelt goal compared to like an egoic, oh, I, I'm, I'm starting a podcast because I want to have a podcast that makes a lot of money and, and it gets me fame. Like this is obviously an unconscious process. If you compare that to, I want a podcast to have interesting conversations with people to put out there and, and maybe cha- help people change the way they see themselves in the world. And if you can identify that, it really makes the whole process a lot more rewarding as well. So in terms of an actual time frame, I think it, it really depends. But we we do, and I talk about context, and it's good to know the context that we're in of like this disposable throwaway culture, even with relationships. Like we live in a culture where, if a, a, you know, relationships hit a bumpy road, oh, that's a red flag, you know? Where in reality, all, all worthwhile relationships do take you know, time to nourish, time to create understanding and work on communication. The sunk cost fallacy, of course, is staying in a relationship that's not okay to be committed. So that's a bit of an abstract answer, but hopefully there's some insight in there somewhere. Definitely. And I love the tie in back to human relationships and almost, you know, the frivolity that we assign them in the modern age. I think there is this tendency to regard them as more disposable than was the case in the past, or at least that's the idea I get from Mm. older generations. And it seems that the paradox of choice is in large part driving a lot of this change in behavior, just the idea that there is something better out there. Mm. And Barry Schwartz does talk about the idea of satisficers versus maximizers, and that if you are a maximizer, always chasing that proverbial holy ground that you might be missing out on something that's quite good. You're sacrificing good for great. And if you're a satisficer and you go in with the idea that this is what I'm looking for and I'm going to make it work, you will end up a lot happier than if you tried to maximize for the traits that you are looking for. And I think you're potentially just missing out on relationships in the here and now by always waiting out for something better, always holding out, hoping that, Mm -hmm. you know, an idealized version of a person exists. So Mm -hmm. I do find that advice quite useful just in terms of practicality and having that, that awareness that the things we envision are not how reality plays out. The the thing that that comes to mind is, uh, and what you, you touched upon here is, you've got to be able to self-assess enough to know when your expectations are healthy. And that also, it, like in actual relationships, and we'll say romantic relationships, just because that's for most people the biggest struggle, you have to know like, are my expectations healthy? Am I looking for this relationship to give me something I feel I, I cannot give myself from a place of deficiency? And to be able to balance that with yeah, you know, oh, this is a this is a tangent. I could go off on that. One. Yeah, <laughs> I can feel this this t- tangent around um, like projection of the romantic idea and and how if you see all relationship as an opportunity, it's all an interaction. It's all a kind of interaction of your own emotions and that person's emotions, their psychology, your psychology, their communication style, your communication style. But we live in such a polarized world. That's the lens we see everything through. But even relationships now are like, they're either good or they're not. They're, they're, you're either with a narcissist or, you, well, you're not with an empath according to online talk because I don't ever see narcissists talking about empaths in articles. <laughs> it's always the empaths talking about the narcissist, but there's this binary approach rather than really, and that's what like the idealized image 
can create such narrow confines. Now, the trouble with that is that most people, they don't practice being able to express their needs in a way healthily to really understand, like, is this expectation okay? So there's actually a balance of healthy expectation and unrealistic expectation. And you need time in a relationship to to learn that. And I think it, you know, ultimately in all relationships for me, like my social circle has shrunk a lot over the last few years because of my focus on work. And that's actually caused me great pain. You know, I, I, I have had to let go of relationships and it's, it's been quite heartbreaking for me to, to do that. But there's been a, an inner process around what, you know, what can I offer? What energy do I have? Are these relationships matching how I've changed? And I think for a lot of people on a process of personal development and growth, that's one of the biggest challenges because your expectations change, you know, and and your self-understanding changes as well. But ultimately for me, it comes down to distilling what values are important and like, you know, things like honesty and respect and openness, you know, they're, they're things you can ground in rather than like the, the superficial or, or the, you know, the, the way that we might view what, what a friend or a partner looks like or, or what they do for work. But if we can re, reintegrate like that shared values and, and understanding. I think there's a, a lot of good <laughs> stuff to unpack there. I, I do like the mention of narcissism and that that's sort of polarity as being very, very prominent in the conversation nowadays. Sometimes I feel like the word is maybe used a little bit too liberally in the sense that I think we probably all have a little bit of narcissist in us and it's probably more a matter Mm -hmm. of degree than anything else. But I really also appreciate your discussion of verbalizing expectations because I think this is something that we are not taught to do. If you're not taught how to do that by your family, you're definitely not going to learn it in school. So it is something that you very much have to discover for yourself. But it kind of does remind me of this discussion of effective communication versus protest behavior. And I think this was discussed in the book Attached by Dr. Levine, where he discusses attachment styles. Mm -hmm. But he also talks about the importance of communicating our needs effectively in the sense that if someone is always making last minute plans with you, protest behavior would be just ignoring them and hoping that they'll somehow catch on. But effective communication would be saying, I feel unsettled when you make last minute plans with me and I really would appreciate advance notice instead. So I think a lot of the time we're simply modeling what the adults in our life have done. So if Mm -hmm. our parents were really prone to protest behavior, we might also be projecting that in adulthood. And we might actually have to spend some time reorienting the way that we approach relationships in general. And I think, you know, just as much as learning, there's all these experiments in unlearning a lot of behaviors as well. And this actually kind of reminds me of another discussion of ask versus guest culture. And I will admit that I was squarely raised Mm. in a guest culture. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of this is also like a female coded task, the noticing behavior. And this is something Kate Mangino talks about in Equal Partners, just the idea of anticipating needs, being able to know what someone wants before they even ask for it. But, you know, in an ask culture, you're basically allowed to make any sort of request and you don't have to worry about it being too excessive or grandiose because the mm. worst that someone can say is no. But in guest culture, you're supposed to gauge whether your request is appropriate or not. And 
I think in general, the West is more ask-oriented, and I think Eastern culture tends to be more guess-oriented. And how would one go about navigating those two cultures, especially when one is perhaps of a dual identity or of like a background mm. where maybe your family is more guess-oriented, but maybe your mm. friends are more ask? And is it right necessarily to ask people raised in a guest culture to change, or should we kind of acclimate depending on the situation or the context in which we find ourselves? I can only answer as someone who's massively stumbling my way through relationships and you know trying my best to <laughs> to live and apply and embody you know a lot of stuff and and feel like I, I fail a lot of the time and and I I, I don't quite get it right, but I, I do feel that I, I relate to my relationship with, with Sanya which has been incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And it is uh, such a rewarding experience and, and there's so much beauty there. But we also went through so much hardship. And I, I feel like we've both got similar levels of resilience in terms of being able to stay with it. But there's been a lot in our relationship where the, the level of communication, you, you mentioned attachment styles. Generally, it seems to be that the more you, attached you are in a relationship, the more reactive you become, the more sensitive you become to that person, the, the higher the risk of psychological projection. And really, communication for me, like communication is everything. That's, it, it becomes a bit of a cliche. But not only that, learning to, to a lot of the time state the obvious or to, to make a request or to ask and inquire rather than making assumptions because it's so easy to make assumptions all the time you know, so easy. And, and with the funny thing with assumptions, because they're, they're, they're on the cusp of consciousness, like they're unconscious a lot of the time, and they're very reactive, you can respond to them as if they're reality without having tested that with a question. And it might be, it can work both ways. It might be an assumption about what, what the person is feeling, or what their motivations are, or it might be an assumption about, oh, this is something I would like to do, but that person will say no or, or, or whatever. So there's a need to like bring, bring stuff to, to the surface and, and actually you know in my experience with communication you're learning how to communicate with that person as much as you are with yourself and there's a, a need to create clarity and know when when there's a potential for like emotionally unloading or projecting or jumping to conclusions and really finding this this balance between being able to express being able to set boundaries and also not to become too responsible for, for other people as well that reminds me of something I had read once. To love someone long-term is to attend a thousand funerals of the people they used to be. And I think that's kind of going mm. back to the idea that in a relationship, two people are constantly co-evolving with one another. But it does kind of also touch on the importance of checking back in and making sure you're on the same page yeah. and growing together and not getting so distanced that you become estranged potentially. I just wanted to touch on that point that you made that the more attached one is, the more reactive they tend to become. That sort of reminded me of something that I had once heard that when there is a breakup, it is the one who is not in love who makes the tender speeches. And I think this is kind of talking mm. about the idea that if you are unattached, you are able to better manage the other person's emotions because you yourself are not so much invested. So you have like the mental bandwidth in order to make the tender speeches to do the comforting because potentially the person who is more invested and more attached they might be reacting in a not so pleasant way at that moment in time just because 
of that feeling of closeness, that feeling that you might be losing something valuable. There's a whole like realm of exploration around balancing the practice. I say practice because it can become a concept very quickly, but the practice of non-attachment, equanimity, and balancing that with healthy attachment to, to another in a loving relationship or all loving relationships and the level of almost like self-deception but also this this dance between you, you have there has to be a willingness to to dive into to your own depths and into your own heart and and the the expansion of love in loving someone in my experience that can also bring up all the wounds and all the kind of protection mechanisms around the heart and it can be terrifying and for a lot of people it can be easier to keep a, a distance rather than risk that that heartbreak rather than risk feeling like this is something that I, I cannot lose and there is that real delicate balance between autonomy and, and interdependence and the willingness to, to open one's heart to, to another uh, and to develop intimate relationships with, with, with people and you know that that is for me that is the most difficult balancing act without a doubt and and again knowing your disposition helps if you know that you're more more avoidant you can work with that if you know that you're more anxious you can work with that and it's finding within ideally each person would, would also do the work in communication and the inner work to know oh i am i am expressing because I'm anxious because I can feel this coming up rather than projecting why did you not respond to me in however long but yet to be able to say I'm actually feeling some anxiety around not hearing from you I don't want to make that your fault but I just want to express it and and there really is that that balancing act and I feel that with spiritual practice it can be, it can be easy to avoid intimacy through the the spiritual ego of I'm non-attached I do think there is this tendency to want to always be independent, even when we are in a relationship, but I don't think that's necessarily pragmatic. So I very much appreciate this discussion around balancing autonomy and interdependence. And mm. we often hear codependency as being a negative thing, but I, I do think that there are unhealthy forms of it, but I do think a certain amount of codependency is only natural. And I often think of interabled relationships, especially when I'm thinking about the idea mm. of, of codependency, because a lot of the time there is this idea that two people should be completely self-sufficient and not rely on one another. But everyone relies on someone to some extent. The very first relationship yeah. that we enter into, that with our mothers, is a codependent one. We're completely reliant. Mm. Our very existence is predicated on this codependent relationship when we're born. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite natural. And I do think it's kind of counterproductive to want to avoid this dependency from forming with other people. But I do think that, you know, there is sometimes an air of ableism to the idea that we should always be fully self-sufficient because none of us make it alone. Everything we do, we're mm -hmm. reliant on other people for like mm -hmm. the food that we eat, for the shelter yeah. that we inhabit, everything that we use, everything that keeps us alive that was due to the work and efforts of other people. And for sure, in relationships, you will establish some degree of dependency. Totally. I think that especially when it comes to things that certain segments of the population live with, like chronic illness. I think the idea that you must be self-sufficient is a little damaging because it perhaps makes people think that 
having these needs makes them less than or incapable of love or mm. the fact that they are somehow unworthy because they might need to be taken care of in some in some way shape or form but truthfully all of us need to be taken care of in, in some way and i think with chronic illness it just presents in a very specific manner but i mean you see it all the time people who are in relationships where chronic disease does present itself and even if it's not at the beginning it can arise later down the line and mm. I think one statistic that is sometimes alarming to people is the fact that men are more likely to leave in the event of a cancer diagnosis if the patient is the woman. And I think mm. this, again, is kind of like going back to this idea of predefined gender roles. And is this the result of social conditioning? Do you think that there are that certain genders are better equipped for caretaking or is this something that anyone can learn I, i'm definitely on the threshold of my my embodiment i think with this it's really important you know the topic that that, that we're, we're discussing because it's so easy in our culture and i say this as someone who would love to believe i'm hyper independent it's so easy to develop a you know heroic idea around that or a heroic story around that and ultimately we we do we rely on on others where everything is is connected and i think that i can only talk for myself and i realize going through my relationships i've got a history of codependency in a way that that really disempowered me and in a way that was not healthy i place so much emphasis on on a romantic partner for my happiness like just generally and it led to a lot of addictive behaviors it led to a lot of low self-worth and and trying to essentially boost my self-esteem through my relationship now that that's not healthy the trouble is in identifying that and then entering a relationship with that awareness there can be a swing in the opposite direction and a sensitivity to anything that might look like codependency so i've experienced that of how do i find that balance and, and when am i swinging into to more like hyper independence that links to to me it links to to caregiving in the sense of there is a a, a mutual support element to relationships and and having you know there's a humility in, in asking for help there's a humility in leaning into someone and it really comes down i think to the individual to know what their their constitution is and not to conflate codependency because this is now in the the collective consciousness and it's also become its own thing its own entity so people are aware of that and then can conflate you know there are going to be ups and downs in life and and the condition of fleeing is a sign of uh, you know anxious attachment and, and noticing a flea mechanism. Oh, this person's now too dependent on me. So really, it's, again, it's a process of self-honesty, self-understanding, and, and finding that through relationship. In terms of of gender roles, for sure, there there are there are stereotypes around that. In terms of you know the woman being more nurturing and supportive in certain ways, and and the man being more stoic, you know, and not not opening up in in certain way emotionally. And the damage that that can do as well. So I, I, I think, yeah, I don't want to give too much of a specific answer on this because I'm, I'm certainly not overly qualified to, to say definitively. But in my experience, it's, it's part of the continuation of development, how you're relating to someone and what is revealed through that level of relating 
also. And I can't, I can't talk for, for caregiving other than a, a past relationship when I was with my girlfriend and her mum passed away and, and there was a need to be, to really step up psychologically, you know, and emotionally. And I think there's great value in that and, and great humility and something that can lead to deeper intimacy. Codependency doesn't tend to, it, it leads to, to greater dependency. So that's maybe one way to define it. Is this behavior leading to, to more dependency emotionally or is it leading to more intimacy? I love that distinction between whether you're attracting more dependency or whether you're attracting intimacy. I think being dependent can be liberating in a way, just in the sense that if you surrender yourself and feel that you are in a safe space, that you are secure, that can often allow you to do so much more just because allowing oneself to become dependent can free your energy up in order to look outwards and even do more from a societal standpoint. And Mm -hmm. it sometimes seems like running away from dependency is basically shortchanging ourselves, that opportunity to have that bond whereby you and your significant other can then go out and conquer the world together. And the fact that if you're not ever willing to lean on anybody else, you wouldn't experience that benefit. Mm -hmm. Because it's like it's mutual support, right? And feeling like you're you have someone in life that that is there through the good times and the bad and you think of like traditional vows of in sickness and in health mm-hmm. you know and, and this idea of growing with someone and, and I think again like all of this stuff rather than it being polarized between dependency and independency to have enough understanding to be able to to break that down into all aspects of what do I need because that's a trouble with codependency. A lot of people that are codependent, they don't know what they need because they're so used to adapting to their partner and, and knowing like, okay, this is what I need. And from that place, how do I communicate that? So this relationship is, is matching and there's a compatibility in terms of that mutual support. And like you say, if you can identify a, a, a joint vision or a joint sense of this is something to aim for, that is incredibly powerful. Uh, in any event, like be, be it romantic, be even creative, like working with someone creatively, being able to have an emergent quality where, where more than one person meets and have an emergent quality that is greater than the sum of individuals. And I think that applies across the board. And a lot of the time to know, the, the irony is to know healthy dependency, you do have to maybe retreat. I've had to really like retreat inwardly to then reemerge and learn learn on the job almost you know like whilst in relationship that's truly when you learn you can you can have all the, like you can have all the knowledge and all the awareness but it's only in the relationship that you start to really learn yeah, yeah it's always a on the job training so to speak read all the <laughs> books that you want but until you actually get your hands dirty in practice the skill set likely won't improve by the leaps and bounds that it otherwise would i think this also connects back to something else that you had said that we should seek first to understand, then be understood. Mm, And, mm -hmm. you know, that idea of communicating expectations, but also first being receptive to what someone else's needs and desires are. Yeah, and you 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 mentioned earlier around like asking and guessing. For a lot of people that might identify as like an empath or someone who's highly sensitive, that can develop in childhood when a parent isn't communicating clearly. And you have to rely on intuition and sensing to get to get some kind of idea or understanding. Like, is this person okay? Have I done something wrong? Are they upset? You know, and, and that 
inner child work that's necessary to then apply that within relationship you know to understand also when when there's like healthy support and when there's taking too much responsibility and also when picking up on on someone energetically or non-verbally can also be really tricky territory as well like when you kind of oh do i inquire and how do i do that and can i do it with my heart can i do it compassionately uh, and there's so much work around heartfelt communication I, I i find and and just the act of compassion like ultimately you know it's easy to convince yourself of your level of compassion when you're in meditation and you're at a buddhist center you're on a spiritual retreat or whatever but compassion in the midst of an argument with your partner where they're you know accusing you of something or they they're, they're, there's an element of judgment or there's upset that you don't understand to have compassion then to try and sidestep the amount of emotional turmoil to actually move out the way of that enough to reach into that person is an incredibly humbling experience but it's it's a real practice that's the yoga of relationships you know that this is recognized as potentially and you do need two people to ha- at least have that intention but there's a yoga of relationships around learning to evolve and grow through those hardships and through one's own reactivity and that for me is, has has been really helpful always trying to understand and then balancing that with honoring myself and from an unbalanced place or reactive place I can be too protective mm. and then I'm not in that space of curiosity and I can defend oh no I feel like I'm definitely right in this moment I'm definitely right compared to right okay I think this is what you mean by that can I understand you know and, and, and having that curiosity that is is incredibly humbling incredibly humbling and, and a really um, catalytic potentially spiritual practice or just self-development practice but it does require in my experience two people to at least have that willingness and intention because if you try and do that with someone who has no desire to take self-responsibility or ownership you, it's tricky territory you know I really like that mention of curiosity as being catalytic yeah always always like as, as an approach to the self as an approach to others as an approach to everything like curiosity is a mindset shift yeah it shifts you into can I see new things about this experience is there more that I can create understanding why is this experience making me feel this way you know and and it it just shifts your whole mindset and it allows a lot more to emerge from there and it's more ultimately more resourceful I like that idea of I like that mention of willingness that reminds me of a an excerpt from Attached where they say that it's important to remember that even with effective communication some problems won't be solved immediately what's vital is your partner's response whether they are concerned about mm. your well-being have your best interests in mind and are willing to work on things mm-hmm. kind of just I was, I was just gonna say you know again it, it oh man it comes it comes down again to to be able to see the values that the relationship offers and the, one of the most powerful experiences i've ever had with sanya has been when either of us is able to reflect enough to have enough self-awareness to say do you know what when, when i i i said whatever i said that was coming from this place within me and i was being reactive and you know, I could see how that linked to this assumption that I made, etc., etc. The power of that is most of us, to some degree, 
if we're doing the work, have an intuitive sense in these kind of conflicts. Like, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't feel quite right that they're saying that right now. Mm. And there's a, a liberation and an affirmation that many of us you know, wouldn't have got in childhood. But there's, a, there's almost this like replaying at times. It happens unconsciously, a replaying of these dynamics. And when you can have someone go, you weren't crazy. You did sense that there was, there was something not quite right. I'm actually upset about the fact you didn't do the washing up three days ago. And I just didn't mention it. You know, and it's, it's this, this replaying from a, really from a higher level of conscious and conscientiousness um, that can be incredibly healing. And that requires a lot of forgiveness. And I feel that we spoke about throwaway culture, the ability to see someone and, and not necessarily straight away. Like there is that time, there's that cooling off period. There's some reflection that might be required, but to go, I get why they, they felt that way. Either because what I did, I, I, you know, I can apologize for that and apologize in a heartfelt way or why they interpreted things in that way. And there's an extension of forgiveness that ultimately is, is also forgiving ourselves because we all have that potentiality. This doesn't apply to like a outright abusive relationship, of course, but you know, Sanya see me at my absolute worst. <laughs> and I mean like my, my shadow, you know, when it's, it's just there and, and I'm like, oh man, there's this tragic irony a lot of the time that the people we're closest to in these relationships see the the kind of the ugliest parts of ourselves but that actually allows for a greater love if we can forgive through that and we can say do you know what i i understand and i can see within myself those same mechanisms and that is again is humbling i I, i've never been more humbled than i have in 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 this relationship through processes like that aim for growth not perfection i think that's a a really important message because I think sometimes there's this idea that if we react from a place of reactivity that we've somehow failed, but that in itself is a growth opportunity, is it not? Yeah. So this is really, really important that you said that because there has to be some kind of inner parameter of like what is healthy tolerance. And again, I love context. So the context of understanding what is the the tolerance level of society? Is Is there a potential I've internalized? a low tolerance level? Is is there a potential that my upbringing through certain dynamics has created a high tolerance to abusive or unwelcome behavior or just a lack of respect? And knowing like there, there are all these behaviors or, or responses that are within my window of tolerance. Ultimately, sometimes there are gonna be things that go outside of that. That's forgivable. Maybe there are some things that are not forgivable and that's for, the, for each individual to know but to be able to, to then express, you know, that, that was, that crossed the boundary and I cannot accept that behavior, but to have a zero tolerance, I think links in with this disposable way of viewing relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and, and spiritual communities can be awful for that. Cause there's like spiritual ego around, don't get angry or don't get emotional when in reality, like that kind of love and relationships that they're, they're based on emotional bonds. So, so you're going to have you know, reactivity and, and to be able to accept that whilst expressing boundaries and, and whilst expressing what is tolerable and what isn't is also a great way to, to empower and, and to aim for growth over perfection. I love that idea as well as your mention of just being seen. 
that kind of reminds me of something that David White had written in a word meditation. He was talking about friendship here, and he said, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement of the self or the other. The ultimate touchstone is witness, the privilege of having been seen by Mm. someone, and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence to have walked with them and have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. But I've always really Mm. loved that idea of just bearing witness and that being the most important thing. Um, I know that, you know, for some people, perhaps mutual improvement is something that they aspire to. But I think bearing witness is just incredibly underrated. Yeah, I also love that you just shared a David White poem. I I went, well, I attended one of his online events with Esther Perel not so long ago. I really love his approach. Yeah, I was really moved by that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It is so important, you know, to to understand the transformative impact of presence, you know, and that's something I practiced a lot in this, this relationship with Sanya as well, of like just being present to someone. Also, and I, I don't coach so much now, but, but in training for coaching and in coaching people, it's incredible how much in just hold it. There's like a term, I, I'm pretty sure it's a spiritual community term of holding space. And, you know, it's just being present, being in your heart, being accepting. That allows for that inner resourcefulness in people to to shift. And there's something incredible also. And I feel like it is really an advanced level of like yoga and relationships. But to be able to hold presence when someone else is projecting diffuses that it's got nowhere to go because we often dance this theater of conflict where one person's projecting and another one's maybe justifying or also projecting and if you have that kind of dance it can just find its own loop and just continue on and on and escalate if one person is able to stay present enough through that 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 projection from the other can go nowhere and, and it's quite incredible to witness that on both sides where it's like for me when I'm when I'm projecting you start I'm projecting right now like Sanya's just she's there she's not really saying much back and then I'm like okay I'm I'm being reactive and the same the other way like you can see this shift in in expression of again it comes back to to like what we we already mentioned having tolerance it's no sign of, of advancement to have zero tolerance to someone else's emotion and, and there are groups out there that they have zero tolerance, right? People will occasionally get upset with you. People will occasionally get angry at you. Maybe it's not justified. You know, people will get frustrated or whatever. And the more you can tolerate that, I feel that there's more potential for harmony in relationships as well. Because that person feels more accepted in their frustration and in their anger and in their sadness. I really do appreciate that discussion on holding space and the ability to diffuse reactivity by being present that was great that was really quite 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 the journey yeah I wasn't expecting that but I I like it because it's very much for me like a it's so intertwined with the emotional aspect and talking through it it keeps me on my toes more that kind of stuff definitely well thank you so much for your time again I really appreciate all of your discussions around enchantment and emotion it's been enlightening and please come back again I would love to and and thank you so much I, I also really really appreciated all your questions and and the level of thought and research and and conscientiousness that you brought to this it's been a real joy so thank you 
If you enjoyed listening, you can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you.